Welcome to Surgical Readings from SRGS, a podcast brought to you by the American College of Surgeons. I'm your host, Dr. Rick Green, and in this series, we will talk to the editors and experts featured in Selected Readings in General Surgery, a publication that highlights highly relevant and practice-changing information from the world's most prominent medical journals. As busy professionals, we don't always have time to read the most current studies. The goal of this podcast is to bring that information to you, providing key takeaways, insights, and perspectives from leading authorities in all surgical specialties and multidisciplinary areas that affect the surgical patient. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and not necessarily that of the American College of Surgeons. This is Dr. Rick Green, and this is a next edition of Surgical Readings from SRGS. Today, we're going to talk about uh, liver disease. We're going to complete our segment three of uh, liver disease in selected readings. And again, it's my uh, great honor and pleasure to have Dr. Zach Deitch with us. He's Assistant Professor of Surgery at Northwestern and also in the Division of Transplantation. Zach, welcome. Thanks so much for having me. Well, the data shows uh, that we'll probably have over 40,000 cases of primary liver disease in the United States in 2023. So that gives a lot of opportunity to talk in this segment about the management both of hepatocellular disease, hepatocellular carcinoma, and cholangiocarcinoma. And I was wondering if you could first talk about the risk factors for HCC. Why are we seeing this increase? Sure. Yeah. So we, we, you know, we expect to see, you know, increasing number of cases of hepatocellular carcinoma. And, you know, traditionally this has been associated most commonly with uh, hepatitis C. However, with effective antiviral therapies, that number is declining. However, we also are seeing larger numbers of uh, patients with liver disease as a result of non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, as well as increasing rates of alcohol abuse. Um, and so these, these combinations are going to increase the burden of liver disease and, and um, subsequently hepatocellular carcinoma, which is for patients with cirrhosis, probably we have a cumulative risk of, of developing HCC in probably 20% of patients. So in our patients uh, who have cirrhosis and uh, other benign variants that you mentioned, how should we follow these patients? How do we diagnose this disease early so we can hopefully uh, regain cure? The recommendations are for patient, patients with cirrhosis to undergo surveillance ultrasound at least every six months. And we do know from data that, that adherence to these recommendations is quite poor, but th these are the most effective ways to detect and potentially intervene for patients at risk, most at risk for, for developing HCC. So if we see a lesion, on uh, one of these imaging studies, what should be our approach? Uh, is biopsy appropriate? Uh, should we um, follow alpha fetoprotein? Should we use that as an indicator for further management? How, how, how would you recommend we, uh, we approach these patients? For sure, alpha fetoprotein is something we should be following, but it can be normal even in the setting of HCC. Most of the time, with a lesion on ultrasound should prompt cross-sectional imaging, uh, liver protocol, CT or MRI. And um, typically, most commonly, a diagnosis can be made based on radiographic criteria. So we have the LIRADS scoring system and a LIRADS-5 provides near certain 
certain diagnosis of an HCC. So HCC has characteristic findings on contrast enhanced imaging. So enhancement on arterial phase imaging with rapid washouts on delayed phases and rim enhancements. So lesions that demonstrate these features can be reliably diagnosed as HCC. So one of the recommendations, at least uh, in the past, has been if the uh, alpha fetoprotein is significantly elevated, let's say above three, 400, you probably don't need a biopsy and maybe a biopsy should not be done. You should go right to resection. What is your view on that? Well, for sure. I think in, in combination with strong radiographic findings that, you know, a LIRADS 5 lesion, the role for biopsy is, is there are fewer and fewer indications for biopsy in patients with suspected HCC. The real indication for biopsy is when radiographic findings are not definitive, don't provide a definitive diagnosis, and biopsy is going to help in the decision-making, whether that's a decision to proceed with surgical resection or to support liver transplant. So that really gets us into the discussion of management. We've now diagnosed the patient, we've done our imaging, we perhaps have done a biopsy, and we have a choice now. Uh, We can resect, we can uh, transplant the patient. How do we make that decision tree? So classically, the thought process was that patients who could undergo liver resection for HCC should be offered that as a first option and then salvage liver transplantation for liver recurrence. But as we've gained increasing experience, we've observed that patients who go to primary transplants have fared better. So now I think the evolution has really shifted away from resection in in most patients who develop HCC, and in those those cases are limited to relatively well-compensated cirrhotics, so patients without significant portal hypertension with normal bilirubin and patients who might be a, a child pew class A patient with relatively small lesions. Those patients who are functionally fit and can tolerate resection can probably proceed to resection. Other patients, however, who fit Milan criteria or could be downstaged to Milan criteria should probably be evaluated for liver transplant. And certainly patients with portal hypertension or signs of liver dysfunction, first thought should probably be a liver transplant. So one of the things that obviously we discuss in multidisciplinary setting is the staging of a patient, the clinical stage, pathological stage. There are a variety of staging systems uh, to be used for HCC. Uh, I happen to favor the TNM system, but could you talk about staging and how important that is, about the size criteria, and what staging system do you specifically use? So the TNM system is helpful, however, can't be reliably used until we have either uh, our specimen and uh, able to assess nodal nodal status and so forth. So often that can't be completed until after resection or transplant is completed. But in the preoperative setting, obviously, we want to assess the size and, and multifocality of primary liver lesions, the extent of any extrahepatic spread with cross-sectional imaging. And that's basically our, our thought process. For patients who we want to think about for liver transplant, these folks will need to fit within Milan criteria. So these are patients with single lesions between two and five centimeters or three lesions, each less than three centimeters in diameter. These patients will meet Milan criteria and qualify for exception points for transplant. So how important is it to get an R0 resection, to get margin of free of, of disease? Is that an important criteria for you? Oh, for sure. In patients that we are going to resect, we absolutely shoot for an R0 resection. 
We have a concept of liberate directed therapy. We always talk about this in multidisciplinary settings. So liver directed therapy can be microwave ablation or uh, uh, other techniques. How does that fit into the primary management of HCC? So the liver directed therapy is a very valuable adjunct in our management of HCC. So the liver directed therapy can be often paired with resection or transplant as a bridge to transplant for curative intent. Uh, in other situations for single lesions or small multifocal lesions, liver-directed therapy can be used with curative intent. So uh, here at my institution, we, we tend to rely heavily on, on Y90 therapy, but RFA, microwave ablation are also options in, in other settings. And in, in patients who are not healthy enough to tolerate uh, resection, these may be the primary treatment. Excellent. Let's transition a little to cholangiocarcinoma. This is uh, not as frequent uh, in the United States as HCC, but it does, uh, it is important. And I was wondering if you could talk a little about the risk factors of a cholangio, uh, whether it's uh, specifically intrahepatic or even extrahepatic. Sure. So the you know risk factors associated with the development of uh, cholangiocarcinoma include primary, primary sclerosis and cholangitis, um, cholidococyst, viral hepatitis, and, um, and can be seen uh, more commonly in patients with cirrhosis. Um, so, you know, in my, my line of work, we're, we're, you know, most commonly seeing patients with uh, intrahepatic cholangios, um, either diagnosed um, pre-transplant or incidentally discovered uh, once the hepatectomy is done and, and on uh, final pathology. Uh, and then occasionally we do see patients referred with um, Hyler cholangios um, for consideration of liver transplant. There are a variety of classifications that we use for liver disease, especially cholangio. Could you could you specifically talk about the bismuth classification? Uh, is that is that helpful to you? Sure. Yeah, I think that's the most commonly used uh, classification for perihyalur tumors. I, I think it's I think it's helpful, but I think when we're thinking about surgical resection, patients rarely fall into these clear classifications. And, and one of the challenges with cholangiocarcinoma is that the disease often extends beyond what we're able to demonstrate on preoperative imaging. So despite our best use of CT, MR, and PET in this disease, often patients are found to be unresectable at the time of operation, either with with grossly metastatic disease at the time of surgery or microscopic extension that, you know, have no chance of discovering preoperatively. The older literature seemed to say that there was little role for transplantation for intrahepatic cholangio. I think that's changing. And obviously uh, in your line, it probably has. So what are the indications for transplantation in this disease? Certainly, we do see people around the world extending indications for liver transplant. Cholangiocarcinoma is, is one of those where, where things have evolved slowly. It's helpful to think about this as you know, intrahepatic cholangio that arises in the setting of PSC, and then also patients with unresectable hyalur cholangios. The short answer is, I think, selected patients with very early stage intrahepatic cholangios that arise in the setting of PSC are, uh, can be appropriate candidates for liver transplant. Now, the hyalur cholangios is a little bit of a different story. Even fewer of these patients will probably be appropriate for transplants. And the most compelling evidence supporting transplants for hyalur cholangios comes out of the Mayo Clinic. 
but patients who actually make it to transplant are few and far between. These patients have to have unresectable hyalurcholangios and complete neoadjuvant therapy and have no evidence of metastatic spread before they can undergo transplant. And the patient number of patients that do proceed to transplant is, is quite few and far between. The reasons why this is this is a challenge, I think, is because of organ scarcity and you know long-term outcomes in these patients tend to be still relatively good when we think about cancer surgery, but below what our expectations are as a community for liver transplant. So this is where I think there's going to be an increasing role for living donor liver transplant uh, in, in patients with, with cholangio. One of the diseases that I've had an interest in over the years is the so-called Klatskin tumor, which is uh, a carcinoma at the bifurcation of the right-left hepatic ducts. And I was wondering if there is any specific uh, management strategies that you would use for a Klatskin tumor. So I think, again, for this operation, the goal should be to get R0 margins. So bile duct resection with hepatic is, is is an option. However, you know, in, in the event that intraoperative frozen sections or there's evidence of spread, then often this needs to be paired with extended hepatectomy. So finally, our volume three of surgical readings deals with transplantation, which is right in your wheelhouse. I, I just like to ask you, uh, since there's been some recent changes in the UNOS organ sharing strategies, I think it's important for surgeons to understand some of those allocation changes are uh, can you can you discuss those for us today? Sure. So this is a, a long-running debate in organ transplant, and the most recent major shift is, as a community, we've gone from allocating organs based on something called the, the DSA to circumferential circles from the donor hospital. So the short story is that what we're seeing is that organs are being directed more towards patients with higher MELD scores, but this does seem to have resulted in more organ discards and greater travel times. In other words, we're flying farther, traveling farther to, to get organs. Um, so it has changed the landscape. I think things are still in evolution. And I think given the recent news, we're going to see more changes down the line. So if we're considering a transplantation for a patient, and you've covered this beautifully for some of the things we've talked about, uh, what are the important strategies that we need to do to evaluate a patient prior to transplant? Sure. So the organ scarcity drives a lot of what we do and how we operate as a, as a community. So our outcomes are very closely scrutinized and publicly reported. And it, traditionally, this has been one-year patient and graft survival. Now, that's changed a, a bit recently, but more or less, these are the, the kind of outcome metrics that we're scrutinized on. And so the you know expectations are that we have in excess of 90% one-year patient and graft survival. And this is often in, in patients who are extremely ill with many comorbidities going into surgery. So our preoperative evaluations, and, and this will be true anywhere that has a liver program, is going to involve a multidisciplinary team. So this involves medical doctors, hepatologists, um, surgeons, social workers, psychiatrists with expertise in, in transplants, functional assessments of patients, nutritional assessments. We have to consider anatomic issues such as whether a patient has appropriate vascular targets. And all this is, is directed at getting patients to transplant and optimizing correctable comorbidities. And unfortunately, oftentimes we have to say no to patients who are, who are too ill or too risky to undergo liver transplant. Many times we still see the patient who has a significant embarrassed seal bleeding. I remember in 
my own experience years ago, putting those sake stock and Blakemore tubes down. I wonder if you would comment a little on the uh, acute management of the variceal bleeding patient. Uh, what's changed? Uh, what are the strategies that you would utilize? Sure. So, you know, patients who, who come in uh, in extremis, obviously you need to secure their airway and, um, these patients will need to be in the ICU. They should have uh, rapid initiation of medications like octreotide or terlipressin, uh, which can reduce splanchnic blood flow and, and reduce the rate of bleeding. These patients should be on antibiotics and should try to get at these patients an EGD to identify and potentially uh, control the source of bleeding. You mentioned the Blakemore tube, the, not used very often anymore, but also a good option in patients where those other efforts fail. And finally, TIPS is a rescue option when these when these options fail to to reduce portal hypertension and um, and control bleeding. Well, Zach, this has been a beautiful discussion of our volume three of selected readings in general surgery on liver disease. Uh, I want to thank you. We've been talking with Dr. Zach Deach. Assistant Professor of Surgery at Northwestern in the Division of Transplantation. Zach, thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Enjoyed it. Thank you for joining us on Surgical Readings from SRGS, a podcast brought to you by the American College of Surgeons. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Please let your friends, trainees, and colleagues know about the podcast. On social media, use the hashtag SurgicalReadings. You can subscribe to Selected Readings in General Surgery at facs.org srgs. Options are available for individuals, institutions, and residents. I'm Dr. Rick Green. Until next time, thank you for listening and learning.